13, verses 1 and 2, which are on page 850 in your pew Bible, or you may read along on the screen. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. This is the gospel of the Lord. It's wonderful to be here to begin this Lenten journey with you. I'm thankful to see new faces here today as well. Uh, What a gift it is to have you with us as we begin. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we begin this Lenten journey in Luke chapter 15, and this is a highly appropriate place for us to begin. In Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He set his presence towards Jerusalem, toward the cross. He then begins a multi-chaptered movement from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem in the south. And he doesn't arrive in Jerusalem until Luke chapter 19. Now, those of you who know math really well, what's right in the middle of Luke 9 and Luke 19? It's Luke chapter 15. And that's where we're going to land in this season of Lent. Lent is a season where we desire to follow in the footsteps of Jesus on his journey to the cross and to the empty tomb, to learn from him, to be challenged by him. Well, in Jesus' own journey to Jerusalem, this chapter stands out in its importance and its message. In this chapter, we get three parables from Jesus, all with similar themes, similar message. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. So for the next five weeks, we're going to land in these parables and dive deeply into them, and we're going to find a God that pursues us, a God that pursues his children to incredible lengths. But we're also going to find something else. Uh, This is a book that's on my shelf, ready to use at all times. It's called Stories with Intent. You can see it's a very light read. It's written by my professor, teacher, sort of personal rabbi friend, Klein Snodgrass, who is a professor emeritus of New Testament studies at North Park Theological Seminary. This is his magnum opus. It's the definitive book on the parables. It will be for the next 30 years, I bet. And uh, I got to serve as a TA for him for three years. And to help him with this book, I worked, my my reading was on the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. Uh, That makes up about 11 and a half pages in this book. And that took three years. So it gives you a sense of how much this person knows. If anybody knows anything about the parables, this one, this guy knows as much as anyone alive. So I figured I better take him out to lunch, right? As I'm starting a series on these parables. So I took him out to, we, uh, to lunch last week, sat at Trey Kroner in, uh, in, in North Park, Albany Park neighborhood, some Swedish food, and I said, okay, my friend, Luke 15, ready, go. And he went. I couldn't take notes quickly enough. But he said something that caught me off guard. He said, Luke 15 is important because it has all the elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that's a big statement. This is someone who's given 50 years of his scholarly life to the gospel of 
studies of Jesus, and he says that all the elements of the gospel of Jesus, the gospel that Jesus understood himself and preached and taught, can be found in Luke chapter 15. These four elements, in his words, are compassion, celebration, the restoration of Israel, and the present and coming kingdom of God. And as we're going to see, as we go forward this month, he's right about this. So not only is this a perfect sort of right down the center Lenten text for us that's going to keep us journeying with Jesus in this season, but it's also one that encapsulates Jesus' gospel and is going to be a way for us to tell the good news of Jesus over and over again in these five weeks. In the words of the great preacher Tim Keller, if the teaching of Jesus is likened to a lake, then Luke chapter 15 would be the clearest spot in the lake where we can see all the way to the bottom. So before we get to the parables... We spend this Sunday on the preamble, those two verses that were read for us. It's the setup for these three parables. In the NRSV again, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. When I met Klein this week, he, last week, he said, you must help your congregation understand the intent of, the, of Jesus' parables in the context with which he speaks of them. Make sure that they know that Luke chapter 15 is an inclusio. So there's your word for the day. What's an inclusio? Well, think of it as like bookends to this story. What happens in the beginning foreshadows what's going to happen at the end. And when we get to the end, it's going to bring us back to the truth of the beginning. This chapter begins with a feast where sinners are invited and it involves these Pharisees that are grumbling. This chapter is going to end with a feast and somebody grumbling, the older brother. So our ability to understand the beginning of this chapter is going to guide us through these parables all the way to the end and bring us back again. So let's dive into this short text. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Tax collectors, what does that mean? They were very disliked in first century Galilee, the northern part of Israel. Here's, here's how this would work. A, a person, typically a Gentile, a non-Jew, would purchase the right to tax an area of the Roman Empire from the local Roman governor of that area. These were called tax farmers. Tax farmers would then hire locals, in this case, mostly Jews, to go out and collect the taxes from the people and bring it back to them. These tax collectors were allowed to, as you might imagine, skim a little bit off the top for themselves, so long as their tax farmer got paid. So, tax collectors were seen by their fellow Jews as not only dishonest morally, but disloyal politically. They were in bed with the Roman occupiers, which was a problem. What they did was seen as a betrayal of both race and religion. And in Luke's gospel, tax collectors often get lumped in with sinners, as we see here. It happens all the time. What does sinner mean here? Well, sinners were people who were seen as unclean, uh, according to Jews, basically meaning that they didn't follow the Mosaic law. But oftentimes it means more than that. Sinners also means people who were notoriously morally suspect. Think about these towns in Galilee. None of them were very big. You would know who the town drunk was or who the town adulterer was or the greedy one or the violent one. 
These were people who were defined by their shortcomings. These were the sinners. And here we see a hallmark of Jesus' ministry. He attracts this kind of person to him over and over again. Notice that the text says all of them were coming to him. All of them were coming to him. Conveying that this was an ongoing occurrence for Jesus. Everywhere he went, these tax collectors and sinners were coming to him. So that's the first crowd in this text. The tax collectors and the sinners. The second is the Pharisees. These are the religious, law-abiding, ceremonially clean, well-versed in God's law. And they are upset that Jesus is sitting or literally reclining with tax collectors and sinners. And even worse, he's eating with them. To this day, if you are welcomed into a Middle Eastern home, that is a sign of honor and kindness that's given to you. If you're welcomed into that home to eat with somebody, that's a sign of acceptance and friendship. The Pharisees felt that Jesus was defiling himself and his actions threatened their moral code, so they grumbled. This is the same word, by the way, that's used for the Israelites after they've been released from slavery and they're grumbling in the wilderness. Same word. These, those ungrateful people who were, who were missing the presence of God who was guiding and leading them, who was in their midst. So it is with the Pharisees here. They're grumbling. They're missing the presence of Jesus. So, if we read it this way, the implication seems um, pretty easy for us, right? That Jesus must be cool with sinners and bummed out by Pharisees. That's kind of the shorthand of this. He would agree with that Billy Joel lyric, I'd rather live with the sinners than die with the saints because the sinners are much more fun. Wouldn't he agree with that? Well, it's actually not that simple. I'm, I'm, I'm flabbergasted by the amount of things I read this week from people who are really, really smart, way smarter than me, I think, who say kind of this sentiment. That Jesus is cool with, with, with sinners and bummed out by Pharisees. That, that this is an example of Jesus condemning religiosity. That Jesus has a preference for sinners. That all established religion is essentially Pharisaic. That this is an example of Jesus identifying himself with sinners over and against the Pharisees. That, it, that it's evidence that Jesus' ministry was, was solely focused for people on the margins. I even read several things this week that implied that Jesus, uh, by eating and, and reclining with these sinners, it was affirming their lifestyle and their choices that the religious establishment had deemed as sins. Now the problem with that is that the text doesn't tell us any of those things. The idea that Jesus came to love and accept sinners and to condemn Pharisees really doesn't hold water for a few reasons, okay? Three reasons. The first is this. Jesus eating, feasting with sinners is a clear indication that he cared for sinners and he welcomed them, but it's improper to believe that Jesus was compromising his ethics in any way to associate with these people. These people had listened to Jesus' teaching. They knew where he stood on sin and, and their lifestyles, and they were coming to him anyways. There was something so compelling about this man that they continued to come. Uh, our culture today is very concerned with, with affirmation, tolerance, non-judgment, but we can't read that in to the first century story of Jesus. He was not affirming their sin, nor eating as a, as a tool of non-judgment. He was caring for them. 
And he desired to spend time with them and to teach them. The the key tenet of Jesus' teaching and the main theme of Luke 15 that we're going to be talking about for the weeks to come is repentance, which is defined as a, a turning from sin and self towards righteousness and God or Jesus. If all the sinners and tax collectors are coming to eat with Jesus, that means that they are already in a process of repentance of turning from their ways, or else they would not be with Jesus. They'd be running away from him. It's undeniable that Jesus had a deep compassion and care for those who were far from God. But he wasn't identifying with or normalizing their sin. He was seeking relationship and repentance with great care and great compassion. The second reason why this argument doesn't really work is that Jesus ate with Pharisees too. In the previous chapter, chapter 14, we see Jesus eating and and teaching in the house of a Pharisee. So if we want to say that Jesus eating with the sinners is a sign of of, of affirmation that he was cool with them, we have to say that he affirms and he's cool with Pharisees too. And based on the pointedness of Jesus' teaching, do you really want to say that? I don't. Because it's clear that he doesn't affirm Pharisees. He was really, really hard on them. He was pointed in his criticism of them. Why? Why? Because he desired their repentance too. He wanted them to repent, to turn from their grumbling, their judgment, their self-righteousness, all of that being sinful behavior, and turn to him instead. And then the third reason that we can overlook so easily is that the audience for all three of these parables in Luke chapter 15 is the Pharisees. He's responding to them. He's talking to them. If he didn't care about them and he only cared about the tax collectors and the sinners, why did he craft such beautiful, careful stories and direct them towards the Pharisees? To simply shame them? No. It's to encourage their repentance. The parables are lovingly crafted and created and delivered for them. So what we see is that God desires repentance for both parties in this text. That's his aim. His goal is to see both of these parties turn from their sin and follow him. And the reality is, as we think about that for our own lives, we all need regular repentance. We all stray from God's presence, God's heart. We need to turn and orient our lives back to him. We sang a hymn in the first first service, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That's us. This means that God doesn't seek us out just to give us a a sales pitch that's going to land us in a heavenly timeshare. He continues to call us back to him time and time again for relationship with us. As many of you know, I don't have a singular conversion story in my life. I, I grew up in the church. I grew up in a really faithful family. I never rebelled real significantly against God or the church. I, I, but, but here's the deal. I have to repent all the time. I turn back to him all the time, all day long. I repent of sin and selfishness, of waywardness, of gross attitudes and gross motives. It's an ongoing process. So so I want to posit a truth from this text that's going to follow us for the weeks to come. And and this is probably the most important thing you're going to hear in this series. And it's this. God, through the person of Jesus, never stops pursuing you. Never. And that's really, really good news. He pursues your heart. 
He cares deeply about you and he desires for your repentance. You're turning your life again towards him and reorienting your life towards him. Um, this, is a, this is a picture of our kids here that I have for you. They are my joy. Uh, they enrich my life. They challenge me. Uh, they are wonderful. Milo, if you want to go to the next one there. Um, I try to be as faithful as I can to them as their dad. I'm certainly not perfect uh, in the way that I do that. Um, I do have a question for God when I meet him face to face someday. I'm not really sure if that's how it works, but if it does, I have a question uh, for him, and it's this. How could my kids be so different? Any parents ever have that question? I have two biological children, my sons, who, who share the same genes, who share basically the same kind of nurture. You can tell they're brothers, right, just looking at them. But what works for one does not work for the other. They couldn't be more different in actuality. And then our daughter, her, her genes are a mystery to us. She's totally and completely my daughter, and she needs a different kind of dad than either of my boys need. So if I were to just subscribe to one uniform parenting model, one response, it would be a total disaster for at least two out of three of my kids. <laughs> but because I know my kids, and because I watch their lives, and because I spend time with them, and I love them, and I care about them so, so much, I do my best to care for each of them. I, I pursue them differently, but I pursue all of them. And if I'm doing this, the front of the line of, the, of highly flawed fathers, how much more does our heavenly father do this for us, his children? He knows us so well that he knows what we need. As we see in this short text, some of us need the presence of God to tell us that we're accepted and that we're loved and that we're known and that our sin does not define us. And some of us need Jesus to correct our self-righteous behaviors, our pride, our judgment. In either case, he knows what we need. And what we need might look different, but it is the same thing, and it's repentance. Remember our definition, turning from sin and self to right living and to Jesus. He's, pursu he's pursuing both the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees in a, in a desire for all of their repentance. He knows, knows what we need. He doesn't give up on any of us, and he pursues us in such a way that we would turn our lives towards him or return to him in our hearts. So my question this morning is, where are you spiritually and what do you need? Jesus already knows what it is. And he's making it available to you. Are you far from Jesus? Do you feel defined by your sin? Are you detached, outcast on the margins? Or are you set in your ways? <laughs> Self-righteous with all the right answers but missing the presence and joy of Jesus in your life? Are you hopeless, prayerless, heartless, grumbling, lost? God, through his son Jesus, is in pursuit of you and desires for you to turn to him to be rescued, received, loved, and restored and where does this call to repentance happen? 
It happens at a table. Don't miss that. It happens at a table. God pursues you to a table, a place of fellowship and acceptance and friendship. I sat at a table with my teacher, Klein. I learned a lot from him. I could have had him on the phone instead or had him just write down his thoughts on Luke 15, but it's so much better when we sit around a table and have food together, especially when it involves Swedish meatballs and lingonberries. That's, that's pretty good. I, I, I've sat around tables with him before where it wasn't as encouraging. It was, he was challenging me. He was rebuking me. The table is a place of relationship and repentance and conversion and life. Some of my best parenting moments have happened around a table and around food. So we begin this journey through Luke chapter 15. And there's been so much that we've left on the table that we're going to get to in the next few weeks. But let me ask this question. What is the table for? The Pharisees saw the table as a boundary for maintaining socio-religious norms. But Jesus saw the table as a place where people who are desiring to orient for the very first time or reorient their lives towards him could find exactly what they need. Compassion and mercy and forgiveness or correction and care. But the table is a place for us to repent, to turn again to Jesus. How appropriate for us this morning on the first Sunday of this month to head to the table, the table that Jesus himself invites us to. So in a few minutes, you're going to have an opportunity to come and partake of this meal. I would invite you, even as you, if, you're, if you partake today, if you, if you have trust and faith in Jesus and you want to come forward, even as you're getting out of your seat to come forward, I want you to think about, I'm turning my shoulders towards Jesus. I'm reorienting my life towards him. For some of you, that might be a first-time thing. For many of you, it's an opportunity to reorient ourselves to Jesus and his goodness in our lives and say, Jesus, you know what I need, and I'm coming to the table to receive it. So I invite you to come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come not to testify that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you're strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need of his mercy and his help. Come not to express an opinion, but to pray for God's presence and to wait upon his spirit.